Hello, dear Chemistry in Everyday Life listeners. First off, a huge thank you to all for regularly tuning into my show. Given it's a pure hobby project, it means the world to me seeing people downloading the show and appreciating the content. Secondly, I wanted to say today is the last episode before I take a bit of time off over the summer to work on more material and to relax a little. Over the next weeks, I will in turn upload reruns of one of the already recorded 35 episodes. If you want to influence which episodes will be played, you can click on the link to a survey in the show notes where you can let me know about your favorite episode of this podcast. The episodes with the most upvotes will be played during the summer. And with this, I say thanks and now on to the next episode. I hope you enjoy it, folks. How do we know where a bee goes inside the hive after a flight? Typically, we mark the bee with some color on its back, and then we watch its movements, or nowadays even more sophisticated. You can attach a microchip to it that allows us to track its movement even while in flight. Whenever you want to distinguish an item from other identical-looking items, we mark it in some form, a sticker, some color, or maybe something entirely different. Attach a scarf to it in case it's a teddy bear. But then, how would you trace sugar molecules when eaten to find out where its atoms end up after digestion? Coloring it red with food coloring won't do the trick, because a colorant is a molecule too, and it will also be digested, but differently to the sugar. Let's explore this idea for a little bit. My name is Johannes Vogel and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. So the trouble with trying to follow a molecule around a body is that molecules are metabolized or digested over time. Molecules change. They lose atoms or gain new ones, change form. So we need to be able to follow this process by marking the atoms. And as we already said before, it's not like you can just color the molecule that you're interested in and wait until something colored green comes out of the body in the urine of feces. Because coloring is also a molecule. So it has to obey the same rules of metabolism as a molecule of interest. And in addition, the two molecules are not connected. There is no easy way of proving where in the body these molecules will go. So that way is a dead end. We cannot track atoms that way. That means, of course, that we need an alternative way to achieve our goals. We need something that behaves exactly like the original material, but can be measured on an atomic level. So what can be done? The answer lies within a concept named the isotopes of chemical elements. A chemical element, like carbon or sodium or gold, is defined by the number of protons in its nucleus, also called the atomic number. 
And all atoms with the same atomic number are atoms of the same element. For a neutral atom, there is an equal amount of electrons whizzing around the nucleus as there are protons within the nucleus. So now I mentioned positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons. These are so-called subatomic particles. But, you know, there are also subatomic particles with a neutral charge, so neither positive nor negative, and they're quite fittingly called neutrons. So you have an atom consisting of a nucleus, a core, and electrons whizzing around it, and inside this nucleus, this core, inside of it there are protons, for neutral atoms, the same amount of protons as there are electrons outside. And then there are neut neutrons inside. These neutrons, as I already mentioned, can also be found inside the nucleus. And they make the atom heavier. This means there are atoms that have the same atomic number, which means it's the same amount of protons in their respective nuclei. Which means, by the way, that they are the same element. These two atoms are the same element. Name it carbon, gold, whatever. But they have a different total amount of subatomic particles inside their nuclei. These two atoms are so-called isotopes of the same element. Take, for example, carbon. Carbon has three different known isotopes. Carbon-12, the most abundant one, with six protons in the nucleus and six neutrons. Then there's carbon-13, with six protons and seven neutrons. And finally, carbon-14, with, you guessed it, six protons and eight neutrons, giving it a mass of 14 units, versus carbon-12 that has 12 mass units. By this point, you will most likely think, cool story, bro. Who cares? Well, for one, I do, but... That's beside the point. There's actually a significance to this. You see, not all isotopes are stable. There are several well-known unstable isotopes. And what happens when an isotope is unstable? It can break down, decay, and give off radiation in its process. It is a so-called radioisotope that falls apart in some form, often into a different element, while giving off some kind of radiation. I won't be able to go into details here due to a little time constraint, but if you want to look up what kind of radiation, there are three commonly mentioned types called alpha, beta, or gamma radiation. And again, you might still think, cool story, brah, but that just means you haven't been quite able to make the connections yet. You see, isotopes are atoms of the same element with different mass units. But they act and react in exactly the same manner in, this, in these circumstances. So a carbon atom in a molecule can be carbon-12, 13, or 14. Chemically, in this context, we won't see a difference. If we then use an unstable radioisotope, we can incorporate radioactive atoms into molecules. And radioactivity can be measured. And, just like that, we have ourselves a way to trace where molecules and their breakdown products in the body go. Isn't that cool?
But what does unstable isotope actually mean? You see, you actually have to choose your radioisotope carefully for two reasons. Number one, you need a type of radiation that travels far enough so you can measure it. And number two, you don't want the isotope to fall apart two seconds after you made it. Number one is fairly straightforward. The high energy radiation like alpha radiation doesn't travel very far. In a body, maybe a couple of micrometers before it interacts with some tissue. Maybe a couple of centimeters in the air before it hits uh, an air molecule of some form. It's just not very practical. Gamma radiation, on the other hand, travels quite far without barriers and therefore can be measured quite well. This is just an illustration as there are other types of radiation too, okay? Number two, the stability of isotopes is another matter. There's a concept called Half-Life and while this is the title of a couple of amazing computer games, it is also crucial in understanding radiation. You see, every unstable radioisotope has a half-life which is the time it takes for its radiation to be half as strong as before. So a half-life of a couple of seconds is totally impractical. You won't even get inside a molecule in, or in the body for that matter before the atoms are all decayed and there's just no radiation left to measure. On the other hand, you don't need something with a half-life of 10,000 years. If you would do this in a patient's body, that person would, well, yeah, for lack of a better term, glow forever. So to monitor something like a biological process, we need an unstable radioisotope with a half-life of a couple of hours to a couple of days that gives off radiation that we can measure easily, such as gamma radiation, but shouldn't be high enough in energy to cause any damage. But how do you make such radioactive isotopes? It involves either a nuclear reactor that exposes the elements to an irradiation of neutrons, or you bombard the elements with protons in something called a cyclotron, or a different thing called a linear accelerator. A nuclear reactor is exactly what we understand about a nuclear power plant. Nuclear fission rods suspended in a clear pool of water. If you ever have a chance to see one, it is quite cool, by the way. You can see this blue shimmer around the rods. The rods themselves don't glow. It is the water around them that interacts with the radiation. And what you do to get a radioactive sample is you suspend it right next to those rods for a while. And depending on for how long, it gets a higher or lower radiation dosage. A cyclotron fires charged particles, protons, by accelerating them from the center outwards through a flat cylindrical vacuum chamber along a spiral path. Another option is the linear accelerator, which as the name suggests has no spiral parts and is more straight in its acceleration path. Which leaves us with the last question of how can we see where our tracers end up in? So we now have radioactive material that we can measure, that can be incorporated into molecules, which then can be ingested or injected to see where they end up in. But how can we see them? Typically, for gamma radiation, gamma cameras are used. Gamma cameras, as the name suggests, can detect gamma radiation. 
If we go into the medical field, we can look at technologies such as scintigraphy or positron emission tomography, abbreviated to PET, and something else called single photon emission computer tomography, short SPECT. The former gives two-dimensional images, while the latter two, PET and SPECT, have the capability to generate three-dimensional images that can quite accurately pinpoint the source of the radiation. It's actually quite cool to see, because so as if it's, for example, a patient, you can kind of show the outline of the patient and very clearly show where the radiation ends up in and pinpoint it towards an organ. Let's take the element iodine, for example. Iodine has lots of different isotopes, many unstable, but more importantly, many unstable with low-energy radiation in form of gamma radiation. Other isotopes of iodine give off stronger radiation that can be used for therapies, but we will focus on the radio traces. Therapies need high-energy radiation that can then attack, for example, cancer cells. The thyroid is an organ that takes up iodine fairly quickly and readily. Especially tumorous growth would pick it up quickly. Now, remember that the different iodine isotopes react the same way in their interaction with the world. So take the isotope iodine-123, which gives off gamma radiation. Inject a prepared aqueous solution of sodium iodide into the patient. Sodium iodide is a compound that can be found in certain table salts to enrich the diets in areas a bit further from the sea, by the way. Anyways, inject that and you have a scan later on that patient. Higher uptake of iodine than usual in certain parts of the thyroid can suggest certain diseases, even cancers. Obviously, a trained physician is much more qualified here to talk about images such as these since uh, they learned it for several years. And this is just one example of an application. In medicine, there are many more options to diagnose a patient using a radioactive tracer, so much so that there is an entire department called nuclear medicine. These guys have diagnostic duties, but they also have the ability to handle higher radiation dosages that can be used as therapy, such as in cancer, where radioactivity is a widely used tool to fight back against this horrible, horrible disease. In addition, you can use radioactive traces to explore biochemical processes. Metabolism research, for example, uses radioactive water with a hydrogen-3 isotope called tritium or a carbon-14 enriched glucose molecule. Just for example, we know a lot about our processes thanks to radioactive tracers. And there you have it, guys. Radiation is quite often associated with bad things. And it is indeed a dangerous tool to wield. But it also can do tremendous good in the world, such as in the world of medicine and biochemical research. If you like this episode, please don't forget to rate my podcast on the platform that you're using. This will make my podcast appear higher in the list and makes it thus more widely available, which would be awesome. If you have comments or ideas for new topics, please leave comments on Twitter under chemistry and Eve one or write directly to me under chem.podcast at gmail.com. If this was too fast to write down, I left the information in the show notes as usual. As a last note, this was the last episode before the summer break, which will last until the end of August. 
I will republish some episodes during that time rather than making new ones. And for that purpose, I have created a little survey in which you can tell me what your most favorite podcast episodes were. And you can find the link to that survey in my show notes. So please click on it. Let me know what your favorite episodes were. And with this being said, thank you all for listening. Enjoy your summer and take care, folks. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.